You are listening to the Backstage Pass podcast, hosted by Hannah Trigwell and sponsored by Tome. Hello, Warren Hewart. How are you? I am rather well, Miss uh, Hannah Trigwell. <laughs> we pronounced each other's names perfectly then. No issues whatsoever. Good. I, I thought I would try because, you know, you made the effort as well. But like, you know, we were saying off camera, I'm not too worried if somebody messes up my name. You know, it's I'm not being English. I don't even say my own name right. You know, anybody that has a name that comes from another country hundreds of years ago. Tomato, <laughs> tomato, you know. Exactly. So I wanted to ask you right at the beginning, how did you, this is a very wide open question. But how did you first get into music? Yeah, there's probably about five ways of interpreting that because I feel like for me, and I've told this story a few times, so if anybody's listened to this and hears it, I apologize. But I, my dad, when I was really young, like little, little, bought me Queen A Night at the Opera. And that was a big deal um, because my father was um, was a painter and a sculptor. And so the, ha- the house was all full of art and paintings and stuff. And the only music that was played constantly was being played was classical music with some jazz. So him giving me a rock and roll album, a rock album when I was little, I mean like little, little, is pretty crazy. Um, and I remember quite vividly he gave it to me for Christmas. We weren't a particularly wealthy family. We grew up in a very nice area, but we didn't, you know, having an artist father uh, – wasn't, wasn't a great deal of money, but it was, you know, he gave me this record and he said, this is worthy. Like, it's okay to listen to this. And so it sort of set it up, you know, I was at that point in my life when, you know, when you're a little kid and your parents are everything and everything yeah. they say is, is, is correct, you know, it doesn't last very long as we know, but <laughs> at that period it, it, it still was there. And, um, I, I, I just listened to it. I remember doing that thing you do when you first discover music. I don't know if you're old enough to have been into vinyl or you've come back to vinyl but Mm, I'm coming back to it I think I I I didn't experience it a lot when I was younger but obviously it's making a revival right now Um, right well the 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 old days of vinyl um was you know you would put side one on if you're a fan I suppose or if you're in love with the record and you would listen to the side one maybe for two weeks You've probably heard people tell that when they were obsessed about records. So you'd only <laughs> listen to side one. And for like two weeks, you'd just be obsessed with it and you'd be reading all the liner notes and reading everything. And then you'd flip it over and listen to side two and then do that for a week or two. And then go back to side one and go, oh, God, I forgot how good this was. <laughs> and that that was that first record. So it, so it's definitely a loaded question because when it went because you know the probably the correct way to answer it would have been to talk about playing guitar and playing in bands but I feel like that is the real essence of the answer to that question because yeah. that is what got me obsessed with music. Now, I didn't actually learn to play guitar um for a, the longest time. I didn't get a guitar until I was 15 and that was the first time I ever played it. And that was actually, I built that. I didn't. My dad built it with my help, meaning he built wow. it and, I, and I, I've, uh, I've sanded off some stuff. And of course, it was completely driven by that, that idea of building a guitar with, you know, like Brian May did with his father. That's amazing. That must have taken him ages. I think it took him like a month or two. Yeah. Wow. I mean, Do you still you know, have it? So, uh, that's a long story. I know where it is, but I don't 
currently have it in my possession. Right. That's what I say about most of the things that I own. <laughs> so were you a guitarist first and then did you play in a band or were you an artist? Oh yeah, I was in loads of bands. Yeah, I played I played guitar, um, although I actually, the first success I had, proper success I had was as a bass player. Um, because when I... When I was playing guitar as a little kid, you know, 15, 16, sorry if anybody's watching, I didn't mean 15, 16 as a little kid, but when <laughs> I first started playing, um, what I mean is, is I, you know, I was really into like being great at guitar, you know, so it was all sort of, you know, very, you know, shreddy kind of stuff. Nice. Well, then rolls in the 90s and being really good at shredding and all that kind of stuff and sweep picking and everything is not not hip, you know what I mean? Everything was Nirvana and, uh, um, you know, all that kind of stuff, which is great. You know, those bands were amazing, and I'm a fan of all of them. But, you know, being being really good at guitar was not really an attribute. You know, you sort of had to hold it. And so um, a friend of mine, uh, Patch Hannon, who I was just chatting with on WhatsApp earlier, uh, was in a band called The Sundays. I don't know if you remember The Sundays. And uh, we grew up together, and he, um, he had st- – joined this new band with an American girl singer. And he said to me, oh, we need a bass player. Do you fancy playing bass? And I was like, sure. So he lent me this bass. And I believe it was one of Phil Lynott's old basses. Long story. Thin Lizzy, <laughs> Phil Lynott. So he lent me this bass um, and I went and auditioned. And instead of being Mr. Shred, you know, and, and coming in and being like, you know, yeah. <laughs> doing all kind of clever stuff. I literally was just like. And just played downbeat, root notes, and I got the gig. Brilliant. I got the gig. They, they auditioned a bunch of bass players, and I got the gig. And, um, Brilliant. I think that, and we had some success. We had, a, we had a one single or two singles in the charts back in the mid-90s. The band was called Star 69, for anybody who wants to look that up and have a laugh. Um, I had bleached blonde hair. <laughs> And it was the mid nineties, and um, no regrets. But I don't, no regrets. And I'd already been in. I'd already, I'd already had a studio. You know, I'd already recorded bands. I'd already been in bands. But that was like the first proper like success. You know, we had a couple of chart songs, and then then we came to America to do the album, and uh, we worked with this amazing producer engineer called Don Smith, who was was amazing. He had done. Um, all the Tom Petty stuff after Shelly Akers was stopped working with them. He started working with them and, um, he'd done the traveling Wilburys, but I think the reason why we liked him, that was all good, but we liked him because he did this album with, uh, Camper Van Beethoven's guys outside of a studio. So they'd found a, and this is all distant memory, but they'd found a barn and he just rolled in a tape machine, you know, built, put in a console, wired it all up, made a record in a barn. Amazing. And so I was like, the guy's discography was amazing. He'd worked with all these incredible artists. He'd done a Stones record. He'd done the Keith Richards solo record. He'd done all these wonderful things. But what I loved about it was that DIY mentality because that's yeah. sort of how I, I feel. You know, I I feel like, you know, I always say to people, I sort of, I feel like a, like a, you know, a Les Paul Jr. or a melody maker. I don't feel like a, I don't feel I'm not a guy that plays, you know, pearl inlay bound, you know, ebony yeah. fretboard, <laughs> mahogany, eighteen switches, beautifully inlaid, ten thousand dollar guitar. I'm the sort of functional Telecaster off the rack, 
you know, I go to stores, like if I was in time and buying a guitar, I'd walk in, I'd probably go to like the most simplest looking guitar and then try a hundred of them like that. And some, I probably might even walk out with the cheapest just because I like the way the neck feels or something. Mm-hmm. And, and so everything about Don Smith was that. Everything was just like, ah, I just made it happen. So I was just so excited. just like, this is the guy after our own heart. And he was. He turned out to be fantastic. Um, he, uh, he was the first guy I ever worked with that had like a Neve console. He had like a little oh, Neve wow. console and, and, and a Fairchild. And these were like mystical things, you know, like because yeah, yeah. they cost so much money. And uh, it was a lot of fun. When you first work with someone that has a lot of like really good kit, it does make an impression though. I mean, I know a, yeah. a lot of stuff's like in the box now and everything, but I know when I when I first walked into like a big shiny studio, I was like, whoa, this, every, anything I do in here is going to sound incredible. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> Which isn't I, always I agree. the case. <laughs> no, definitely not the case, but I know what you mean. Do you remember that? Do you remember that first time? that you heard like proper compression on, on your vocals. Yeah, because I'd never actually it just, like, heard amazing? what it really did. I think yeah. like I, I kind of knew what it did and I'd listened to like A-bead stuff in like some all right headphones. But when I heard a really solid compression through amazing speakers, I was like, oh, this is it. <laughs> this is what it does. I remember, so we we, we started our record like, immediately it was it was we did we did pre-production um for just a few days with with the drummer but we had this um we had brian mcleod playing drums um and people should look him up in america people can't pronounce his name so if the americans are listening it's it's like mac leod <laughs> oh is McLeod. that how they say it yeah they say mr mac leod um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he he always jokes about it. He is American, but he says he always has to explain to him how to pronounce Scottish names. But but anyway, uh, Mr. MacLeod, Brian MacLeod, is incredible drummer. Um, he had just done the Tuesday Night Music Club first album. He was in the band, you know. He'd written a lot of those songs. I think he wrote If It Makes You Happy with Sheryl Crow, Crow and stuff. Wow. So he's supremely talented. And mm. and I, I just remember the excitement of like having – I had a I had a bass. I had a really nice one, a music man. But Don Smith goes, try this P bass out. And he gives me this like vintage P bass. We have an Ampeg set up, all mic'd up, ready to go. And it's just, the tone is just phenomenal. And that compression, I remember just hitting that and going, bang. I'm just being like, what happened? How did, where did that come from? And he just had everything set right. So there was no like little brit- brittle attack. It was just singing and you're just sitting there in a room, you know, headphones on, this world-class drummer that you, you, you're just a couple of feet away from and you've never, you know, no social distancing then, um, you know, just a few <laughs> feet away from. And, yeah. and it's just feeling like in that room. And I'd recorded, and don't get me wrong, I recorded with my, uh, my friend Patch. He's a world-class drummer. Played with the Sundays, sold millions of records. So I'd done it, but Brian McLeod was like... Otherworldly. Oh, yeah. I remember we did this song called I'm Selfish and it was it was rocking and the whole we started off with a click and then we dropped the click and then let the band go for it. And I remember we played him the demo through the speakers and he listened and he didn't make any notes and then we went in and recorded it at one time and he's like can we go and check it out and we go back and check it out and we're all sitting there playing it back through the speakers and we're all looking at each other like could this be any better I doubt it. <laughs> 
<laughs> and it was his first take. And wow. just that those those and then there's obviously there was other songs we spent a long time on some some clicked quick some didn't you know yeah. that's the way it all works and sometimes it wasn't him I was like I was not hitting it properly and the new drummer was outdoing me you know it's just that that feeling of being in a studio for the first time with great musicians mm. a great engineer you know great production you know great room great gear like you were saying all of those things are just like ha huh. yeah it is magical how did you go yep. from being like a you know, a, a musician, like playing the bass to a producer? Well, I, I always always had studios or semblances of studios, you know, whether it be, um, I've talked about a lot before, you know, two tape decks. Originally, I had, uh, my, my dad had his uh, st- Sony stereo and uh, we had a Philips cassette player. And um, what I would do is I'd play like a rhythm guitar part you know, and then, or to be honest, it was always like when I first started, it was like pentatonic minor blues scales, no understanding what note to bend, no understanding. So it'd be like, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I, I'd be like, you know, I'd be like, <laughs> and then I would play a third up and play the harmony, you know, and, but what I would do is I'd take that cassette out, stick it in my parents' hi-fi play it back through the speakers and play the overdub being recorded on the Philips cassette player. So that was how I started. That's how I learned <laughs> well, to record. So it was just it was just two cassettes going backwards and forwards. Of course, by the end of it, you had like this slightly out of tune, bad guitar playing harmony with a lot of <laughs> hiss in the background. But You've got to start somewhere. You've got to start somewhere. Exactly. Um, you know, like I said, I don't want to play up the whole fact of being the, the, the poor kid, but, you know, we, we didn't have any any money. It's, uh, it's funny, My uh, we were watching uh, The Bionic Man, Six Million Dollar Man on TV the other day. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, when I was little, this was the show that was on television, and I always wanted a, a Six Million Dollar Man, and my parents couldn't afford one, so they bought, like, the the cheap knockoff, and it was, like, slightly smaller and didn't quite look like him, you know, because it was, like, a third of the price. So I, I, I sort of have, like, the scarring of going to school with my cheap knockoff and all the kids, like, teasing me, you know, because I, cause my parents couldn't afford to buy the real one. Um, and But, you know, that sort of reminds me of, 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 I don't know, you know, I've used this quote a lot, but the Segovia quote, which I'm totally paraphrasing and is completely wrong, but something where he said all of my good students gave up. And that's that doesn't mean that doesn't mean like oh the people that are left standing aren't very good. What he what he was saying, and I'm sure it's a lot. I'm just paraphrasing it. Was when things come easily, people give up. So you know, right. I I was saying this in an interview the other day. One of my best friends still plays guitar, but he doesn't do it for a living. But he was the guy that just he picked up a guitar, and I remember we were into ACDC, and he would just like first week know all the acdc songs he just had a great ear and yes they're simple but we're talking a week of playing guitar and he's already strumming acdc songs like straight away and i got there but i just had to work harder than him i had to do six hours practice when he used to have to do an hour and you know he still plays and he's still a great guitar player but he doesn't do it for a living and he's mm-hmm. probably the same guitar player he's been for 20 years where i keep learning i still play every day you know, it's one it's one of the joys doing what we do for a living, doing music, you know, and even all the things like you and I are doing outside of like just recording and writing, 
it just the ability to be able to like add it all up together as one career is just remarkable and it takes a lot of being kicked over and bashing into a wall oh, yeah. and getting back up again. <laughs> yeah. I've pushed against so many walls. Everything I've done in life has been because people won't let me be in their club. So I started my own club, you know? That's sort of how I feel about it. You know, when I was a kid at school, I was very I was very shy, as loud as I am now. I was very shy, um, very bookish. I came from a poor family in a wealthy neighborhood, so I didn't know it, but I felt a little less than. And now... Uh, I just want, I'm sure you feel the same way. I just want to create my own playground. You know, I want yeah. the people around me. I want the equipment I want. And the, more, more importantly, I want the people in my life mm. to be my choices, not pushed on me. Yeah. Absolutely. You know what I mean? I want to hang out with people I like. I, yeah. if I don't, you know what I mean? You know, mm. I remember, I, I remember, you know, wanting to do video content with, with, uh, with somebody, um, you know, um, pretty much all of the big names, you know, all of the big people that do it. I was like, hey, we should do some stuff. And they're like, yeah, I don't know. So I just was like, you know what? I'm just going to do it on my own. Yeah, that's kind of how I got into it as well. <laughs> I was just yeah. like, I, I really wanted to, I've always loved collaborating. But as you say, sometimes when you get in touch with people that you um, look up to as a musician, they, if you look up to them as a musician, they might, already be successful you know just by the nature of looking up to someone um and yeah all of those people declined my please can we write a song together because I was no one of notoriety so I was just like oh nobody wants why would anyone want to work with someone that's Did never you send released them a, a song, song before I released them a really bad recording of a really rough song and it took me a while to get rid of that um feeling of you know, they they should like this song. This is a good song. You don't really understand in the beginning. <laughs> you kind of just think it should just be all about the music, but it, but obviously it's not. And so... Yeah, this is a really in interesting conversation. We could talk about this for hours because I get a lot of those emails and I listen yeah. to every song. And as a producer, as well as a songwriter, but as a producer first, if I put that hat on first, it is my job... And this is a good conversation to talk if, we, if we're going to have producers listening to this or potential producers. It is my job to bring out what's great from somebody and exaggerate it and make more of it. Yeah. So when you send me a song and I don't know who you are, and let's just say 90% of it is like, oh, no, but there's a piece at the bridge. And I'm like, that's a really good melody. Oh, and I love, I love the way the vocal did this or did that. My email back is... Yeah, you know, the song, the song needs a lot of work, but go to that second line in the bridge. You see what you did there? And you went into a falsetto. It's the only time in the song that you did the falsetto, and that's where your voice sounds amazing. Do more mm -hmm. of that. And that's my job as a producer. When people um, when people are, are dismissive or whatever, there's lots of reasons. Sometimes it's, A, they're too busy. Oh, um, yeah. It's interesting because, look, you, you, Look at this world we're in at the moment. This exact where we're at at the moment with with what's going on. There's a lot of chickens coming home to roost for that kind of attitude. Yeah, there's a lot. True. You know what I mean? A lot yeah, of guys, yeah. guys and girls sitting in their in their houses, going, "Oh, you know what? My work's dried up." And it's like, well, you know what? You you've got to be a receptive, open person, and people have mm -hmm. got to want to work with you. And I try my darndest 
to answer everything I possibly can. And it is exhausting. And I do find myself sitting up at two o'clock in the morning if I can't sleep, like responding to like every single um, message that I possibly can. I try to go every form. To me, it's really important that people feel valued in their, in, in, in what they do. We, we have a thing called a Produce Like a Pro Academy. And what we do is we do put up a multi-track, sometimes two, sometimes three multi-tracks a month because we're always giving away stuff. And then we mix critique them. And we listen to them and we make comments. And I, that is so important to me to do that. Mm. Um, and then all of the people that do what I do and have those kind of stuff all said to me, oh man, you know, you, do you, how many times do you hear all the digital marketing stuff? You know, that one with the six hour work week that everybody likes to talk about? You know that one? Oh, the four hour, four hour oh, work Oh, it four week. hour work week? Sorry. <laughs> Yeah. You know those I'm not, people? I mean, I'm not an expert on the book, but I have seen it, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, all, all, all of those chickens are coming home to roost. You know what I mean? They're all like, yeah. because all of those those guys and girls are all like, yeah, man, you know, you just need to like spend a few hours and film this course, man, and like watch the money come in. And that's really the attitude. It's like, you know, you don't have to work so hard. Everybody said to me, Warren, why do you do all those mixed critiques? Why do you go online? You do so much hard work and all this stuff. I was like, because I want to build a community of people that care about each other, genuinely care and support each, each other. And if mm. I'm not one of those people, then how's that going to work? Yeah. And now I'm watching all of the people that do what I do, trying to do that same thing a little bit too little and too late. You know, it's like... And you sort of, I get this sort of feeling like they're lowering themselves to have to interact with people and all this kind of stuff. And it's, yeah, it's very it's, unfortunate. Yeah. You've got, you, you've got to, you've got to really care about people. Now, the problem is, is like, it does get overwhelming. I get four to 500 emails a day and I try to find a way of responding to everything in, in, in a way I can. Um, I absolutely, I try I try to respond to as many people as possible, but even for me, and I don't get that many emails a day, I do find it difficult. <laughs> Not yet. I do find it difficult to respond to everybody, but like you were saying before about the course thing, um, you know, I, I've seen a lot of people doing things like that and putting it out there and then not doing anything like that ever again or doing, you know, a short, a really short video series on something, but then not really getting into the comments or, you know, taking feedback on or answering questions. And it just like from a viewer's point of view, it just seems like, oh, it's just, it's just a business punt, which, yeah. which is fine. I mean, and I get it from a creator's point of view, but it's not sustainable to do that. If you don't well, really it love it or you don't want to, you know, connect with people that way. No, I agree. I'm glad. I'm glad you're pointing it out. I agree entirely. I mean, it's it's a kind of a catch twenty two, isn't it? Because you find yeah. you find people that are successful at doing those kind of things, but it doesn't always mean you're going to respect them. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, I yeah. know a couple of people that are really, really good at YouTube that have do one video a week and get massive numbers and make huge revenue. And they spend the whole week like editing together this perfect video, but then sit in a room with them and give them a guitar and have them write a song. And it's a painful experience, but they know <laughs> how to make it look, you know what I mean? They're, they're to incredible editors. They're, yeah. they're scripted and they're perfect. The thing is, is like Eric and I, this is all we do every day. 
So when we make a video, it has to be like, well, we've got, you know, he'll tell you, we've got, we got 45 minutes to shoot a video and then you've got to edit it tonight to get it up tomorrow. And he drives home and <laughs> he sits up till midnight editing a video that has to go up today. In fact, it happened last night. What time did I text you? 11? 11 and said, can you put a different, he had to edit uh, an interview on the front of a video because anyway, it just, it was the only way to give it any kind of good context. So we had to edit that and put it on the front of the video and upload it at 11 o'clock at night. That probably wasn't that much work, but I bet he was still working on it at midnight and on something that we had filmed that same day. And to be honest, I still think the quality's there because this is what I do for a living. There's a difference. Mm. You can either do a lot of content because this is what you do and you show what you do, or you can be completely clueless and not know anything about it, but spend a week doing one video and it'll come out absolutely amazing. It's it's a very interesting sort of world that we're navigating. Um, yeah. Um, I remember going to like make a video about... Um, it's really funny actually a few years ago going to to make a video about playing bass and I didn't play bass and I was thinking you know of of videos that I could make and I just had I wasn't thinking about it properly in terms of like you say just documenting what I do is is now the kind of rhythm that I'm in and and it works way better for me because it's just normal and natural but I was like oh what kind of video can I make I haven't done anything with bass let's play bass this is how you play bass. And I remember just sitting down about to do it thinking, I can't even really play bass very well. Like, what am I doing? It how just... did the video come out? Oh, it didn't come out. I. <laughs> oh, you, I... you didn't put it out or, or it didn't no, come out very no. well? No, It didn't even begin because I had at least some insight before I even started doing the thing. I was like, I'm thinking about this completely the wrong way. What do I actually want from this action and I realized that what I wanted is for people to go through the video and listen to my original music which just made no sense that I was doing this other random thing that I didn't even know anything about well I mean that's that's the navigation of of, of it isn't it you're, you're sort of you really hit the nail on the head but lots of people wouldn't wouldn't say no this isn't going to work they would just do it anyway <laughs> Lots of people, um, you know, there's some successful YouTubers and, and I watch some of their, their videos and I see their progression as they're learning how to do the job they're teaching, which mm. they don't really know how to, to do yet. You see them sort of evolve and make all the mistakes that people make while learning how to mix a song or record a song or write a song. But they're, they're, but they're presenting it as, as you know, experts. That's one of the things why I'm really yeah. afraid of the word expert. You know, if you've ever watched any of my videos, I usually at least some point kind of make a joke about being an ex, not being an expert. And, and you, you know, it's that's a little terrifying to me because the experts are always the ones that tell you you're doing it wrong. You know, mm-hmm. you, you know, I'm sure you felt like that when you're sending songs to people like, oh, my God, this is like this person's an expert and they're going to tell me whether I'm good or bad. And the yeah, reality absolutely. is the best songs ever written were written by people, teenagers, early 20s. Yeah, there's some older people as well. I don't, it's not an age thing. My point is, is like experience is great, but it's not a precursor for something being amazing. There are people um, teaching how to make money at music that have never made money at music. Yeah, that's, there's, that's... there's courses all the time. I find that kind of thing really worrying as well. Because right, but they're the, successful. They are, yeah, they are. Yeah. 
but it, how to grow your business that I don't actually personally have, but I'm going to teach you how to grow it. And it's just <laughs> it's, crazy, isn't it? Yeah. And there's, I mean, yeah, there are a lot of people doing things like that online. I mean, just the introduction of the internet has made everything so much more possible and accessible for people who aren't necessarily sure. funded by like a major label. If you're, if you're talking about an yeah. artist or like a major publisher, if you're a, a songwriter or a producer, but the, the amazing thing is that technology has uh, has advanced so much and is so much cheaper. From like a a producer's point of view, if we're just talking about plugins, it's incredible what you can do now with not a great budget, but choosing like the right plugins for the right kind of action. Have you found that you've moved into digital plugins over analog? I do both, uh, and I have done yeah. both from the beginning, um, right? Because because I did start, um, you know, properly recording. You know, early mid nineties is when I first started properly recording stuff. You know, and so 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 I I was there right from the the, the machine I had was actually a one inch tape machine. We had a studio with an MSR twenty four, which was a Tascam one inch tape tape machine um and then for my own personal studio when i came to america in the mid late 90s um i got adats so you know i've had all of those kind of transitional and then when i was doing you know my recordings in the 90s it was still two inch tape even though the the beginnings of daw was around there was pro tools but there was this sort of you know, there was a bit of a snobbery about Pro Tools or any DAWs at first from almost all every engineer. They were like, oh, it sounds too brittle. It sounds too... Everybody would always say it sounds too digital, which mm. now I think doesn't really make any sense because now I think most of us would attribute digital to mean sounds perfect, sounds spotless, sounds, you know. But in those days, it was a put down in the 90s, especially, you know, mid-late 90s as the revolution started to happen in music. It was a put down to just say that it was going to be harsh. It was going to be, you know, wasn't going to sound warm and natural and all of <laughs> yeah. those kind of things. And, you know, which we now know is kind of meaningless because, you know, there are, like you're pointing out, a million plugins to emulate everything and i think the the one thing i like about working you know in a digital domain is just the access that it gives us i mean i'm surrounded by um you're gonna see a bit on the camera but you know i've got an ssl i've got beautiful speakers the focals the genelix the Callies. i've got you know poltex which are like four grand each i've got six of them you know wow all this expensive <laughs> equipment but the reality is is like when i'm recording outside of a drum kit or a piano in stereo, a bass is maybe a bass amp and a DI. Most of what I do is with one microphone going through right. one mic pre. And, you know, I we've been using a lot, um, and it's not in the camera shot, but an Audient ID44. And it's just sitting down there. Um, and, you know, that's, that's what we use. We just use a simple... Um, you know, um, inexpensive interface for 90% of what we do these days. And I've got really, really nice gear, which I use specifically for the sound. Like I love the BAE mic pre's, you know, I've got the 312s and the 1073s and 1028s. I've got, you know, 
all of this really, really nice gear, but for so much of what we're doing, especially when we're demonstrating gear and stuff, we mm. keep it deliberately dumb and simple because I'm not any use to people watching my videos if everything is a million dollars worth of gear. How can I say yeah. to you, you know, hey, Hannah, try out this new microphone, <laughs> you know, through this, you know, 50 grand's worth of gear, which you're never going to have or never need mm. to have, more importantly. Do you, you like know, the you UAD see- stuff? Yeah, we, 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 we're moving a lot more into UAD. I've got a whole new computer system down here with all the UAD stuff on it. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's going to be crazy, exciting. isn't it? Yeah. It's an amazing time. I think, you know, the, the technology is going to advance faster and faster as well. Yep. And it's just, I can't actually envisage where it's going to go from here because it just seems like maybe that's because I'm not <laughs> a visionary, but it seems like we're, how can it be easier and better than it is now? <laughs> Oh, it's wonderful. So tell me a bit, a bit about what you do. You're, you're a singer-songwriter or you're a producer as well? Oh, I'm a singer and a songwriter, but I I do basic production for me in terms of like demo songs, but I'm not a producer. The kind of things that I look for in terms of like producer tips online, which is how I found you, um, is fixes for my issues. Um, right. You know, right. things that things that I don't necessarily understand or I've made an error through recording and I need to fix something. Like, actually, recently, today, I made quite a big error that you might be able to help me with, actually. Please. <laughs> um, I I had checked the audio for something that I was recording, just spoken word, and um, everything seemed to be fine. Then I left the room, came back, and I must have moved a wire over um, an electrical output. Ah, uh, Okay. Yeah, so there's a bad electrical hum buzz on there. Yeah, the rule the rule with that is is to minimise the um, the amount of contact. So they always say to you, do it at ninety degrees. You probably yeah. heard that and probably read it already. But yes, if you lay power cables and audio cables, you know, together with each other, you really increase the likelihood of the of the noise coming through. Yeah, uh, and but you might you also might Lucky have mistake. RF. Well, it's pretty. It it's it's not really. It happens all the time, you know. Because when you're in a recording studio, that stuff will get discovered, you know, if it's part of the process. But sometimes things move so quickly that th- things happen. I, I we did an album maybe about five years ago with Robert John and the Wreck um, in uh, at Sunset Sound in one day. We tracked the whole album in a day. And what happened wow. is we were in the middle of middle of track. Yeah, it was like ten or twelve songs. We did all the all of the basics there. We ended up, I think we redid the vocals the next day here. And then we mixed here like the next day. So it was like a two-day project. It was done really, really quickly. And the bass player in the middle of recording, like we did like two or three takes of each song. I think it was one or two songs. We were like, that's the one, like on the first take. Sometimes <laughs> we did four takes, you know. But in the middle of one of the songs, like on take two or three, the bass player changes his bass. So he mutes. And I was probably talking to the drummer or the guitar player about a sound or a part or something. So he mutes the, um, you know, his amp, probably puts into the tuner on, changes his bass, plugs in, and we go into another take. So I missed it. I didn't notice that had happened. Okay. It shouldn't really matter, except, of course, when he changed the bass, he changed to an active bass, and it was putting out, like, a 
crap ton more volume. So what happened? The DI goes into square waves four or five times during the whole recording because, you know, sometimes you just hit too hard. The output's now so high, it goes... And mm. I give that multi-track out because, of course, that happened to be the take. That was the take. So you have one of two choices, and that's just real life. Yeah. And so whatever, I look out through the window. I'm like, oh, it's a freaking different bass. It's active, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I'm not going to turn it down during the take because I'll never be able to rematch the gain. And then, of course, we finish. We solve it. We do another take. But the one we love is the one that has the distortion on it. You've got to so, have the best feel versus yeah. the best quality. Definitely. I agree there. I remember being a kid. And like taking a one, four, five, you know. And then learning about uh, the three minor chord. <laughs> and going, wow, I could just rewrite my song. And then, of course, you learn about the two minor. And then one day you go, you hear like a Weezer song and River's makes the two minor a major chord. You get... And you're like, that's genius. I'm going to put that in one of my songs. And it's just like, or Kurt Cobain. Do you think Kurt Cobain was going, well, you know, you see, I'm using the Phrygian Lydian over the so-and-so. When he, when he went a one-four kind of dumb thing and then moved it up a minor third, he didn't say any of those words I just said. Yeah. He did not go, I'm doing a one third four and I'm going to move it up a minor third. One four. <laughs> he just went. But what if he did though? What if he did? <laughs> <laughs> My brain's just not in that area for music at all. I'm just, I'm not, um, I'm not trained. And so when I've Good. taught myself to play guitar, it's been very much tablature as opposed to like for for the majority, genuinely for the majority of chords that I play, I couldn't tell you what they are, which sometimes is a bit of an issue, to be honest. Um, I know what you mean, but it's it's individuality. What was what was great? What's good and what's bad about everything? It's all about balance. Now yeah. we have access to everything, and that's amazing that I can go online and be like, "How the heck do I need?" Because I might be playing a song and I'm playing it wrong my whole life. <laughs> and then because I'm putting the wrong note in or I'm pushing on the wrong beat or I'm playing the wrong chord, I'm thinking it's an A but minor. Then it's your it's actually... version, right? But that's the point. When yeah. all the people that we – let's just sort of take like classic guitar players for a second. Everybody knows, you know, um, everybody uses the same players and we're all fans of them. Everybody is a fan of these Guys, these dudes, these men from from Britain in the mid sixties. Let's be honest; it's all it's the same ones, and they're all amazing. Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, you know Peter Green. Everybody uses those catchphrases, and they're all absolutely phenomenal. All of them learned how to play by beg, borrowing, or stealing like seven inches or albums that they would get, mm. you know, from blues artists from America, and then they would interpret it themselves. And then they probably, I do know that Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck and a lot of those uh, South London guys knew each other. So they probably all swapped riffs and sat around and you played me a riff and I interpreted your riff and did my version. And then we listened to a record. And it, it means that when you listen to a record of that period, or yeah. even now those players, and uh, you go, oh, that's Jimmy Page playing guitar. Oh, that's Jeff Beck. I mean, but now, let's be honest, you put on and listen to... 
you just don't know which yeah person is playing the shred fest where's the <laughs> and again i don't mind technical i love technical playing mm. you know i absolutely love technique i love it all i mean you i love all that stuff the thing is is like um i think we're just in that sort of bubble at the moment where there's just this massive influx of of, of everything being about technical and overanalyzing everything and like every sick sick oh my god cyclical things every cyclical? cycle cyclical 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 thank you i'm <laughs> It's not that early, but obviously I need another cup of tea. I've got my PG tips going. <laughs> PG t- Oh, where's your Yorkshire tea, you know? Come well, on. Well, you know, I'm... I'm uh, you get them what you can get out there. Manby-pamby southerners. I'm a manby-pamby southerner, that's why. <laughs> so if I just briefly go back to that, um, yeah, the, the electrical buzz thing. If you had like one plug-in that you would say, use that, that might be able to get it out. <laughs> what would you say that would be? Oh, I think it's. Uh, I, I think Isotope make all of the, the the great fixing plugins, don't they? They're really smart at that stuff. I know Warren Sokol, mm-hmm. a mastering engineer friend of mine, was able to remove um, a foot thump in something that wasn't in time. Sometimes, like having wow. that, you know, you know that kind of, you know, when somebody's boom, 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 yeah, can be really cool. But if they're thumping out of time and then. <laughs> And then you have like other instruments in there, um, and maybe that thump is is just like a little bit too high. It's not like only super low, so you can't just wipe it out. Mm. You know, okay, we'll take sixty hertz out. Oh, it's gone. Yes, that can help sometimes, but sometimes it wasn't. And you know, he he used the isotope on one of our tracks once, and just literally pinpointed that particular noise that was coming in. It was remarkable. Wow. It, it, you can see it like a heat map. It yeah. basically gives you all the frequencies and you see all of these things and you can just target that particular sound without affecting the other stuff pretty much at all. I've seen miracles, heard miracles, I should say. <laughs> it's weird that the guy was like tapping his foot out of time. I actually worked with a producer once who, and this really freaked me out, but we were recording and um, and so I didn't realise until I went in and the 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 guitarist I was working with at the time was recording something and I saw this right. this guy and, and he was he was moving you know to the song like this but not not just not on the beat not off beat just in a completely different tempo <laughs> to the song right and and I was thinking he's either a genius or this is going to be awful <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you can be in a, a semi trance. I, I remember going um, going to. I had one guitar lesson with a jazz guitar player in England called Esmond Selwyn, who's a really famous jazz guitar player and very very good. And I remember I think he was in Wales, and it took me like two and a half hours to drive to his house for a one hour lesson. And I remember it being really expensive, so wow. I couldn't do it more than once. And I remember going there, and he. He uh, he was meditating when I arrived. Like I arrived like 45 minutes early. I didn't know how long the drive was going to be. I asked him, I said, um, you know, um, so do you meditate? And he's like, yes, I meditate. It helps me be focused. And, you know, when I'm practicing and playing and stuff like that, I'm super focused. And, and, mm-hmm. and you know, gave me a lot of reasons why. And he said, well, how often do you practice? And I was like, you know, at that point I was obsessed. 
I'm still obsessed, but you know, get, uh, there wasn't anything else in my life except for playing guitar. And yeah. I was like, yeah, I, you know, I play like six to 10 hours a day, day, depending on, you know, how my hand holds up and all that stuff. And he goes, you don't need to learn meditation. I was like, what do you mean? He goes, you're meditating, you know, cause you're just in uh. that zone on your own, just focused in on one task. Yeah. And that is the to paraphrase them and be completely wrong. Yeah. So I think sometimes that when people are performing, they get into this like trance like state and they're in it, but they're not really conscious of, 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 of it now. And then there's other people that are really like in it and that's great, but that might be a whole different performance. I think if I was mm. Joe Strummer, I was lucky enough to get to work with Joe Strummer just a, a bit before he died. And yeah, for, with him, it was like, <laughs> Everything was deliberate and you believed it. And that was what's yeah. so fantastic about it. Um, yeah. And when I watch like a metal guy shredding and stuff like that, he's going to be very focused. It's, it's almost like a physical activity. But yeah, maybe somebody strumming some chords, you know, singing, a, you know, a beautiful melody. It depends melody. on the song, doesn't it? Yeah, I saw Jeff Buckley and that was like, first of all, it was like life-changing. Jeff Buckley at Shepherd's Bush Empire. And he was like, he was like just kind of a bit like this. He'd like lean in and sing and he was just kind of lost in it. And it was insane. Um, and they, that, that was definitely what you were talking about. There was a bit of that. Yeah. You know, but it was Jeff Buckley, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, if Jeff Buckley does that, it's, it's, it's cool. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Well, we are out of time, but it's been so great to speak to you. Just before we say goodbye, I have two questions. Yes, My please. first one is, what is your track of the week? Uh, the new Fiona, Fiona Apple record is absolutely amazing, the whole album. Um, yes. It came out Tuesday, came out on Friday, so I think, obviously it's going to be a few weeks later, but yeah, it's phenomenal. Um, all of the reviews that are amazing are all true. Um, it's been reviewed so well. I feel like with Fiona Apple, I remember when Tidal came out, it was like a breath of fresh air. Made no sense with the, with the scene at the time, which was so grunge-orientated. Mm -hmm. This girl comes out, she's... 17, 18, 19 years old. I can't remember how old she was, like 18, I think, when she did the album. She comes out, it's completely left of center. Everything about it was different from what was current. Um, it was an amazing album of, like, it moved from, like, a, a singer that was just empowered at such a young age to extreme vulnerability, everything in between. It was, like, what you want from an artist. And then I felt yeah. like... She had a period where it started to feel like the other people who she was working with were more vocal than she was. I liked the Porn album, but it did sort of feel like a John Bryan solo record that she was singing on. I know, I know producer friends of mine love that record because of the sonic landscape. And now I feel like this new album is Tidal again. It's like a, it's just coming out like swinging for the fences, as Americans would say. It's like <laughs> all about her. It doesn't yeah. feel like anybody. I mean, she's got her band playing on it, so she's in control. Um, yeah. And what is the best lesson that you've learned in your career so far? I think what we've been intimating in our conversation, which is treat everybody the same. You, you know, mm -hmm. there's nothing worse than when you're, you're working with somebody who either is a two option, two extremes and you pandy to it. So either they're completely new and you, like you said, you've experienced people who are dismissive with you at first, you know, so being dismissive of somebody that's new or the opposite and just as bad, like walking around on like tender hooks being like, Oh my God, you're so amazing. You've got to be yourself. 
You've got to be yourself. <laughs> the way we're talking to each other here is how Eric and I talk. It's how I talk to everybody. You've got to learn. And it takes time. You've just got to be comfortable enough in yourself to be yourself. And then people either, mm. they, maybe they won't like you, maybe they will. But the reality is, is that you won't have to have this pretension and play these games of trying to be like the, you know, oh my God, I'm going to treat this person with deference because they're famous. <laughs> it doesn't work. Because yeah. you, when you work with a big artist and you're pandying to them, they see it because they're surrounded by sycophants going, oh my God, you're amazing, like all the time. They don't want that. They want to be in a room with somebody who treats them like an equal and tells them when they did something great and tells them also when they did something crap. And that is the way mm. to be. So, yeah, it's a it's sort of a life lesson in everything. You know, grow into yourself and just have the confidence in your own ability. If somebody puts you in a room and they want to work with you, that's 99% of the battle has already been won. So just be like, okay, this person asked to write a song with me. This person wanted to work with me. Okay. I don't have to be quite so terrified and, and, and afraid. You know, as that old, as that old phrase that's been around for a billion years, you know, 99% of the job is just showing up. So yeah. if you can own that and realize that really is the truth, then you can walk into every situation with enough confidence to just be yourself. And that's the biggest thing you can do. Amazing. Thanks so much for speaking to me today. Thank Warren. you. It was marvellous. Ms. Trigwell. It's been great to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs>